Texarkana, Texas, October 9th, 2022. Night. The witching hour. A full moon is reflected in a still puddle of water. Suddenly it ripples. A blue Honda Civic pulls up, its red taillights glowing in the dark, and parks near a dark forested area. We see two figures inside the vehicle, an older man in the driver's seat and a teenage girl riding shotgun. 50-year-old Troy Foreman and 16-year-old Laura Crane. We don't have to be out here, you know. We can go to the motel, Troy said nervously. Laura, pretty and blonde, smiles at Troy and says, It's a small town. I wouldn't want anyone to see us. Troy caressed Laura's hair. I want you to know, I don't normally do this. I'm not a groomer. I mean, I'm not one of those guys that's normally interested in girls your age, but when I met you at church, I... Laura smiled and put a finger to his lips. It's okay. This will be our secret, she says. Troy seemed hesitant. I gotta know that you're not going to tell anyone about us, he replied. I won't tell anyone, I swear, Laura insisted. Troy leans in close to Laura's ear. How do I know you're telling me the truth? Because I like older men, Laura said with her face half shrouded in shadow, her eyes luminous in the moonlight. And this is where it happened. Or what happened? Troy asked, confused. The murders. Seventy years ago, a series of murders occurred in Texarkana. The killer wore a scary mask and targeted young couples late at night on Lover's Lane. The press dubbed him the Phantom Killer. He was never caught. One of the murders happened not far from where we were parked. Don't you listen to true crime podcasts? Laura asked. Nah, I only listen to sports talk radio and Alex Jones, Troy replied flatly. Laura gave Troy the side eye and muttered, Okay, boomer, under her breath as she texted someone. Troy gazed at the teenage girl with predatory lust in his eyes. Laura, I don't know if I can contain myself anymore. You are all I think about. I want to fucking tear you apart, Troy confided as he locks the door of the car with his key fob. Laura's smile turns to horror. Troy grabs her forcefully by the face and moves in to kiss her. Just as their lips are about to meet, suddenly there's a loud noise from outside the car. What was that? Troy asked, startled. Oh God, I want to go home, Laura cried, her eyes wild with panic and fear. Troy muzzles Laura with his hand and tells her to be quiet as he listens intently. Laura jumps in her seat as someone moves by the side of the car. Another strange noise. Loud, jarring, threatening. The car starts rocking. Laura screams as a figure suddenly appeared at the window next to Troy. The figure wore a white hood over its head, with holes sliced out for the eyes, and was dressed in a long black cloak that had a red inverted pentagram draped across the chest. The masked maniac pointed a gun at Troy and using a voice modulator to speak, ordered him to get out of the car or they would blow his face off. Panicked, Troy turned to Laura and asked her what he should do. Die, Laura hissed with crazy eyes as she revealed a ceremonial knife and plunged it deep into Troy's side. Blood trickled from his mouth as a dark spot spread across his abdomen. Troy stared at Laura in disbelief. He was dying and he knew it. Laura tilted her head ominously and smiled with demented glee. She yanked the knife out of Troy's midsection, looked him straight in the eye and licked the blood off the blade. Her teeth smeared with crimson. The hooded figure at the driver's side window then shot Troy point-blank in the face with a gun, spattering Laura with blood and gore. Troy then slumped over in the seat, 
dead, dark fluid dripping from what was left of his cranium. Laura, now covered in Troy's blood and skull fragments, fishes the key fob out of the dead man's pocket, unlocks the door, and exits the vehicle. She slowly approached the figure in the mask, their silhouettes illuminated by the headlights of the car. The figure removed their mask, revealing another teenage girl underneath. Roughly the same age as Laura, the girl had raven black hair, light eyes, and porcelain skin. She smiled at Laura and the two embraced with a passionate kiss. Charlotte, what took you so long? I thought that old creeper was about to rape and murder me, Laura snapped. Charlotte shrugged and said, I was on TikTok watching videos about the Phantom Killer. She then placed the hood back on her head and pointed her gun at Laura. Laura's eyes widen with fear as she backs away from Charlotte and threw her hands up in the air. What the hell do you think you're doing? Laura shouted, her voice quivering with fear. Finishing the sacrifice, Charlotte replied. Spooky? Do you think I'm spooky? I told my mom I thought I saw a werewolf. And my mom believed me. I like to put chemicals in the water to turn the friggin' frogs gay! Damn, damn, crap! You think these people were eaten? My dog stepped on a bee. Unidentified flying objects. I think that fits the description pretty well. Haunted human remains. He's dead. But he has the power to move and kill. She was bludgeoned to death with an axe. <laughs> A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. When I stand on the mountain and I say, do it, it gets done. If it don't get done, then I'll move on it. And that's the last thing in the world you want me to do. And this is the Spookies Podcast. (laughs) What's going on, everybody? I'm your host, Michael, historian of the macabre. And I'm your other host, the normal one, Stephanie. (laughs) And welcome to the Spookies Podcast. And we are back. It's been, what, a month? (laughs) Like the undead corpse of Madonna's bad plastic surgery, we have returned to talk about a very dark, very scary case. (laughs) I hope you brought your cowboy boots, Stephanie, because tonight we are headed to Texas. You know, the state that calls mass shootings freedom festivals. (laughs) I mean, it could be worse. I suppose it could be Florida. Florida is dead to me. Florida is the state of shark attacks, the state of hurricanes, and crash dummies for governors. <laughs> if Florida was a person, it would be the Tiger King. Oh, absolutely. Florida is like dumb California. <laughs> and I have lived in California, Florida, and Texas. So, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. I do feel really bad for our friends that live down there. Same. Not yeah. everyone in Florida is a maniac, just, yeah. mo- just most of them. Uh, well, I- and they don't, they don't like DeSantis, you know, so they're not crazy about that jackass. He's unlikable, yet millions of people vote for him. Well, there's a huge machine that has allowed that to happen. <laughs> I fully expect Florida to ban seatbelts or make drunk driving legal again <laughs> to own the libs. They would. You know, I found out that... They fucking would. Drunk driving... Uh, was not made illegal until I believe 1988, which that wowed me. That that same same because I I figured that was kind of always illegal. I don't know why I, I don't know why I always thought that. If Florida was honest, and let's be honest, Florida is never honest. 
Casey Anthony, the top mom from hell, would be the official mascot of that state. <laughs> she is the perfect personification of Florida's values. Think about it. She will kill her kid and then go to the tanning salon. <laughs> it doesn't get more Florida than that. We have Florida man, but we also have Florida girl. <laughs> okay, Stephanie. Casey Anthony is another pod for another day. And yes, we will be covering Casey Anthony eventually. Mm -hmm. Let's get on with the show. It's time to talk about the mask man. <laughs> Tonight, Michael and I are taking a long, hard look into the abyss. And she doesn't mean rectums. Or his rectum. <laughs> Michael certainly knows how to pick them. Tonight's case actually gave me nightmares as a kid. I'm not making this up. <laughs> Did your mom tell you about this case? Yes. I was six years old, and my grandmother would keep me up late at night talking about dark shit. <laughs> Hence the podcast. <laughs> so so she would talk about um, Satanists that were out to get you. Yeah. And serial killers. And He-Man. Okay. He-Man was a Satanist. No! <laughs> And I think I've told this story before. Wait, how do I not I, remember that? <laughs> I went to school, first grade, and I go in there and the TV's on and He-Man's on and I run screaming from the room because... <laughs> she convinced you that poor He-Man is a Satanist. He-Man and Skeletor. But he has the power. <laughs> Skeletor was a Satanist and he's going to crawl out of the TV and get me. But not He... But Oh, so Skeletor was a Satanist, not He-Man? No, He-Man was too. <laughs> They're in cahoots. Yeah. <laughs> it's galaxy brain, I know. <laughs> Why did she do that to you? That's horrible. That's horrible. That's such a fun freaking cartoon, man. Well, she also had me convinced the Transformers were Satanists. <laughs> <laughs> it's like nothing was safe. <laughs> nothing was there safe. were dark arts going on on Cybertron. <laughs> So, I'm curious what you think, Stephanie. What is it about a killer in a mask that makes them so scary? Any thoughts on that? I mean, I think it's kind of obvious. You can't see their freaking face, and sometimes you can't see their eyes, and therefore you can't read their expression or know their intention. And that's, that's scary. Well, according to evolutionary psychology, masks trigger within us a fear response. They arouse within us a primal, visceral fear of violent death at the hands of an anonymous killer. The stuff of nightmares. A killer in a mask becomes an inhuman or perhaps unknowable threat. Masks remove our humanity. They dehumanize us. Horror movies are full of killers who wear masks in order to scare their victims. Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, Ghostface from the Scream franchise, to name a few. Masks make killers more scary. When we put on the mask, we become the thing lurking in the dark. We become what Jung called the shadow. And yet sometimes, sometimes the mask is the true face. Which brings us to tonight's case. The Phantom Killer. A still unidentified rapist and serial killer responsible for what came to be known as the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. Five canonical kills. Eight victims a suspect, and several other cold case homicides. Although police investigated more than 400 suspects, the killer was never caught, and the case remains unsolved to this day. The murders have been referred to as the number one unsolved murder case in Texas history, 
and became the source material for countless slasher movies and urban legends. The Phantom Killer would go on to embody an archetypal or elemental form of evil, an almost mythical boogeyman. The Texarkana Phantom became the quintessential American horror story about teenagers, the lust of youth, and trying to escape a sex-crazed killer in the dark. The town where the murders took place is called Texarkana because half of the town is in Texas and half of it is in Arkansas. Get it? It's very clever. (laughs) Very. I have been to Texarkana several times in the 80s, and it smells like cow shit and paper mills. (laughs) Texas people are tough, I'm telling you. You would have to be to put up with that smell. The Texarkana Moonlight Murders gave birth to the modern slasher film. They inspired the original incarnation of Jason Voorhees. And here's a bit of interesting horror movie trivia. When Jason first appeared in the Friday the 13th franchise, he did not wear the iconic hockey mask. No. Spoiler alert, Jason isn't the killer in the original Friday the 13th movie. It's his mom. He doesn't show up until the second movie, and when it does, he wears a burlap sack over his head, clearly inspired by the Phantom Killer. I maintain that Baghead Jason is still the scariest Jason. Mm Mm-hmm. He's not a zombie or some unstoppable monster. He's like a homicidal two-year-old who only understands violence and tries to solve everything with a machete or a pitchfork or a pickaxe. Yeah, it was just like heavy, heavy Something items heavy. To, to murder people. Masculine. Yeah, and shove them into trees with the person impaled. I remember having seen bits and pieces of the Friday the 13th movies as a kid. I think they came on the USA Network at like four on a Sunday afternoon. Right, right. But they all kind of blurred together. Yeah. And I was like, whatever, not scary. I've seen everything. Nothing scares me. (laughs) Horror movies are like comfort food to me because I'm sick. Um, (laughs) So one night, six or seven years ago, Stephanie and I decided to sit down and watch the series, and I put on the first Friday 13th movie. Now, I was slightly intoxicated. I was prepared to mock the movie. We're going to Mr. Shine's Theater this shit. <laughs> and about 15 minutes in, and I realized the movie's actually scary. Yeah. It's creeping me out. Stephanie is about to shit her pants <laughs> at the jump scare at the end of the first movie when Jason jumps out of the Oh, yeah. <laughs> there lake. were several jump scares, but that, that last one is, uh, I wasn't expecting it. So, yeah, I, I think I screamed. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I did. It is scary. It was scary. <laughs> People are like, that movie's awful. No, it's scary. It's well done. Yeah, it scared the shit out of me because I hadn't, I, I was like you had only seen like it parts of it. It is only interested in being a scary movie and it, succeeds on that level that's what it's trying to do is to be scary it really is i i would say a true horror scary movie where a lot of more modern horror like horror movies are kind of they're funny like scream yeah and i'm fine with that like you know they're creepy and stuff and they've got jump scares but but they're meta yeah this is not meta no not at all this is very much a terrifying movie really really gets and the kills i would not want to watch this by myself by the way (laughs) the kills are not cool they're just gross and brutal yeah so they feel kind of real yeah after we got done watching the first movie, we watched the second movie. And this is where Jason is introduced and he wears a burlap sack on his head. And the murder scenes are just so brutal. You can feel the ferocity. It's it scared the shit out of me. Yeah, that one was very scary as well. Now, this ties back to our case because there are not one but two movies made about the Phantom Killer. Both were titled The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which you have to admit is a pretty great name for a horror film. It kind of sounds like a Western. Yeah, well, there were towns that dreaded sundown. Right, it sounds there like a western. There were towns in the south that dreaded sundown uh, if you were black. Yeah. 
The first movie was released in 1976, and the 1976 film is screened in Texarkana every year around Halloween near a park where one of the murders took place. That's that's really fucking gross and just a little bit fucked up. Okay, a lot. It, it is. A lot fucked up. It is. F-bombs, F-bombs. Uh, <laughs> the, the issue with it is it feels like a celebration of the killer. Yeah. And look, I know we are true crime podcasters, and that means some people consider us scum, <laughs> and they're not wrong. <laughs> but having a screening near the site where one of the murders occurred, and it's one of the it's where the younger people were killed. It just seems very ghoulish and sickening. Many of the victims in the case were naive and vulnerable teenagers who were either brutally murdered or maimed by an unknown maniac in a scary mask. This case is about the fear of violent death and our primal instinct to survive. The fear we all have of a chance encounter with someone you don't know, who for no apparent reason will brutally murder you, it's a deep fear, an ancient fear. So tonight, Stephanie is going to walk us through the timeline of the murders. And once we are done with spooky story time, I am going to give my thoughts and talk about some of the suspects and theories. Michael's theories, um, they're crazy, even for him. <laughs> you marry a crazy person as your husband, you get crazy theories. I'm a package deal. All right. <laughs> All right, Stephanie, take us back to 1946. This is the true story of the Texarkana Phantom Killer. The following podcast contains scenes of graphic violence and sexual assault that some listeners might find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. The year was 1946. On the surface, the town of Texarkana appeared to be a place with a strong community where no one locked their doors at night. Like a Norman Rockwell painting come to life. A quiet place. A safe place. Men were coming home from the Second World War, and life was seemingly returning to normal in America. By all outward appearances, Texarkana was an idyllic post-war suburb. The history of Texarkana, on the other hand, paints a far darker and more complicated picture of unspoken atrocities, a town haunted by a tragic and violent past. If condemned prisons or insane asylums can become infected with a dark energy, so can the soul of a town. The violence and trauma inflicted upon human beings simply doesn't go away. It poisons the land. The soil on which towns are built are always shaped and molded by the evil that men do. Only nine years after Texarkana was founded in 1882, a violent storm blew through the town. The townspeople took shelter nearby in the Paragon Saloon. The storm caused the building to collapse, and kerosene lamps used to light the saloon overturned, setting both the wreckage and the victims afire. Those who weren't killed instantly were trapped underneath the rubble and slowly burned to death. The suffering and torment went on for hours. The never-ending rain and blazing inferno made rescue almost impossible. One doomed man, trapped beneath the rubble, pulled out his pistol and shot himself. In the end, over 50 souls perished that night. Many tales of ghosts 
and whispers of a curse would be spawned from what came to be known as the Paragon Horror. The ground was poisoned, and a terrible seed was planted. In 1892, Edward Coy, a 32-year-old black man, was accused of raping a white woman. A mob pronounced him guilty, tied him to a tree, chipped the flesh from his body, poured coal oil all over him, and then burned him at the stake before a crowd of thousands. In 1940, a 42-year-old woman named Gertrude Hutchins was found brutally slain in her home. Her skull had been crushed with a car axle, and her throat had been slit ear to ear. The killer was never caught. And in 1946, the American twin city of Texarkana was terrorized by a sadistic maniac in a mask. He wore a white sheet or sack over his head, with holes sliced out for his eyes, and brutally raped and murdered the young and vulnerable. He committed grisly executions late at night under a shroud of darkness. There's a reason Texarkana became known as the town that dreaded sundown. On February 22, 1946, at midnight, Jimmy Hollis, age 25, and his date, Mary Jean Larry, age 19, parked on a secluded dirt road, shrouded in a ghostly fog, known as Lover's Lane, so things could get a little more intimate. After about 10 minutes, a terrifying figure wearing a white cloth mask, which resembled a pillowcase with holes sliced out for eyes, appeared at Hollis's driver's side door. The figure in the white hood shined a flashlight through the window and ordered the couple out of the car at gunpoint. The masked man then shoved the gun in Hollis's face and ordered him to take off his pants. After he complied, Mary Jean Larry heard a loud cracking noise like a gunshot. It was actually the sound of Jimmy's skull cracking from being pistol whipped. The maniac in the mask wasn't finished. He begins kicking and stomping on Jimmy as his date watched in horror. Mary screamed. Thinking the assailant wanted to rob them, she showed him Hollis's wallet to prove he had no money, after which she was violently struck with a blunt object, knocking her to the ground. Her attacker asked Mary if she wants to play a game. He stuck the barrel of his gun in her mouth and ordered her to stand, and when she did so, he told her to run or he would shoot her in the face. Mary ran for the road, but was wearing high heels, and so the masked man caught up with her. He asked her why she was running. When Mary said that he had told her to do so, he taunted her by calling her a liar. He then bashed her in the head again with a blunt object. Mary fell to the ground. Bleeding from the head wound, she tried to crawl away, but her attacker forced himself on top of her and raped her with the barrel of his gun. 
Mary screamed at her attacker to just go ahead and kill her. Before he could kill Mary, the phantom attacker was scared off by the lights of a car that drove by. Having been violated and soaked in her own blood, Mary managed to pick herself up off the ground and fled on foot a half mile to a nearby house where she called the police. Meanwhile, despite having sustained severe head trauma, Jimmy Hollis regained consciousness and staggered to his feet. Having been brutally beaten, with his glasses nowhere to be found, Hollis alerted a passing car that was occupied by a man and a woman. The young couple were terrified at the sight of his bloody, battered figure shambling out of the dark. The driver refused to let Hollis inside the car, but promised he would call an ambulance. Police and emergency services arrived shortly thereafter. Both Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Larry received medical treatment for their injuries. Both had survived a vicious and brutal attack, but not without psychological trauma, and for Hollis, multiple skull fractures. Jimmy would lay in a coma for 12 days. The police gave new meaning to the term victim-blaming when they accused both Jimmy and Mary of knowing more than they were saying, and that they were protecting the identity of the predator that nearly killed them. They dismissed the near-fatal encounter as an isolated incident. But this would be the first of many attacks by an unidentified predator in a white pillowcase mask. Like the shark from Jaws, the man in the mask was just getting started. A violent, sex-crazed maniac was at large. On the morning of March 24, 1946, a passing motorist spotted a car sitting just off Highway 67 on what was then known as Lover's Lane, about a mile outside Texarkana. At first, the motorist thought the passengers were sleeping. Then, as he approached the 1941 Oldsmobile, he made a grisly discovery. The motorist found the bodies of 29-year-old war veteran Richard L. Griffin and 17-year-old Polly Ann Moore. Each had been shot twice in the back of the head. The motorist called the police. Richard Griffin, who had just been discharged from the Navy in 1945, was found dead in the front seat of the vehicle. He had been stripped naked below the waist. His pockets had been turned inside out, likely staged to make it look like a robbery gone wrong. Polly Ann's body was in the back seat of the car. For decades, rumors have persisted she had been sexually assaulted with a gun barrel. Whether those rumors were true or not remains unknown. Due to a mix-up, her body was taken to a funeral home before a proper autopsy could be performed. What does lead credence to the rape theory is that police found a large, blood-soaked stain on the ground 20 feet from the car where a blanket had been placed, suggesting the killer had forced Polly to the ground and killed her there. Eerily similar to the rape and attempted murder of Mary Jean Larry roughly a month earlier. The theory goes that the hooded maniac sexually assaulted Polly, shot her in the head, and then placed her body in the backseat of the car. Richard and Polly were last seen alive the night before, at around 10 p.m., eating with Richard's sister and her boyfriend. They were next seen around 9 a.m., dead in Richard Griffin's car, the entire inside of which was spattered with their blood. A single recovered shell casing at the scene and a pool of dried blood about 20 feet from the vehicle were the closest things the authorities had to evidence. 
Police theorized the killer used an old trick to create an improvised silencer, wrap a piece of fabric around the barrel of a gun in order to muffle the sound. Most of what might have been left in the form of tracks, footprints, or fingerprints had been washed away by morning rain or contaminated by curious onlookers and careless law enforcement officers trampling on an unmanaged crime scene. It was 1946, and criminal forensics were in their infancy. Police were eventually able to determine bullets removed from Richard L. Griffin's skull were 32 caliber rounds, and that the murder weapon had been an auto or semi-auto pistol, most likely an American-made Colt. The morning after the murders, the Texarkana Gazette ran a front-page story with the headline, Couple Found Shot to Death in Auto. It would take another violent attack, however, before the townspeople would come to fear the night. 15-year-old Betty Jo Booker and 17-year-old Paul Martin had known each other since kindergarten. And while it is unclear if they were ever romantically involved, most newspapers characterize their last night on Earth together as something of a date. Paul Martin was popular in high school, described by his classmates as a sweet kid with no known enemies. Paul had three older brothers, all of which fought in World War II. Despite being too young to enlist, Paul wanted to fight Nazis like his brothers. He ultimately settled for attending military school in Mississippi instead, before moving back to Texarkana with his family in 1945. Betty Jo Booker was a teenage prodigy who had overcome an unfortunate period of darkness in her life. She had lost her father at the age of three. Her older brother had been born with debilitating brain damage, and her mother Bessie did everything she could to support her family alone. Betty Jo was pretty, well-liked by her peers, and a straight-A student and talented musician, naturally gifted at both the piano and the saxophone. When Betty Jo was 12, her brother also passed away. Betty Jo and her mother, Bessie, remained exceptionally close. Bessie was so proud of her daughter, she kept a scrapbook of her daughter's high school achievements. At only 15 years old, Betty Jo Booker was in many ways an anomaly, a young woman well ahead of her time. On the night of Saturday, April 13, 1946, Paul Martin drove to the Texarkana WFW building in a Ford coupe he had borrowed from his brother. He was there to pick up Betty Jo, who played sax there in a band called the Rhythm Airs. At around 1.30 a.m. in the morning, Paul picked Betty Jo up from her musical performance at the VFW club. It would be the last time they would be seen alive. During the night, Betty Jo's mother, Bessie, had violent, terrifying nightmares that her daughter had been murdered. She knew something was wrong. Somehow she just knew her daughter's life was in danger. When Betty Jo Booker didn't come home the next morning, frantic search parties spread out to look for her. Paul Martin's body was found first. A married couple discovered him on the edge of the North Park Road, lying on his left side in the gravel. They first thought he was some drunk, sleeping one off. As the couple got closer, they realized they had stumbled upon the grisly murder of a small teenage boy. The killer had shot the 17-year-old kid four times. Once in the back of the neck with the bullet exiting his face. Once in the back of his left shoulder. Once in the hand as he tried to defend himself. And savagely, once in his face. When it comes to the phantom killer, 
the cruelty was always the point. Mary Jo's body wouldn't be found until noon that Sunday. It had been left nowhere near Martin's, but nearly two miles away, in a wooded area just a few yards off Morris Lane. She had been shot twice, once in the heart and once in the face. Like the earlier victims, Betty Jo Booker had been tortured and raped with the barrel of the gun. Her crime scene had been staged ritualistically. The killer buttoned her shirt up to the chin and her hands placed in her pockets. According to the autopsies, both victims fought with their attacker to stay alive. They did not go down without a fight. Police were able to determine from the examinations of the bodies that the murder weapon was a 32 automatic Colt pistol, the same weapon used in the Griffin Moore murders. Someone in Texarkana was killing off random teenagers with a crisp and cold precision, and no one had an easy answer as to why. The murders were senseless and seemingly motiveless. The killer wore a mask, not just to conceal his identity, but to terrorize his victims. After the horrific and senseless murders of Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin, law enforcement finally started taking the threat seriously. The Texas Rangers were called in and even the FBI got involved. The murders had a clear pattern. One, all the victims were young couples. Two, the killer targeted them during the weekends. Three, the victims were killed on lovers' lanes or quiet stretches of road. The unknown killer wanted to terrorize the entire town and the media only helped fan the flames. Because he seemed to vanish and elude capture, the perpetrator was dubbed the Phantom Killer by the local newspaper, the Texarkana Gazette. It was a name that stuck and in many ways only served to intensify the rising hysteria within the community. As people linked the murders, a state of fear and paranoia spread throughout Texarkana. Residents became paralyzed coping with the idea of a nameless, faceless monster in their midst. Everyone suspected everyone else. Neighbor turned on neighbor. The once peaceful community began to tear itself apart. The police were constantly getting calls, mostly at night, about prowlers and shadowy figures in the dark. Ministers called for a nightly curfew to, in the words of the Texarkana Gazette, curb juvenile delinquency and some of its tragic aftermaths, as if the victims had brought this on themselves. A curfew was indeed implemented, and Texarkana all but shut down the city in the wake of the murders. Citizens soon became prisoners in their own homes. Residents, caught in a grip of mass terror, crafted homemade booby traps. They stocked up on guns and guard dogs. There were multiple incidents of people being shot after being mistaken for the killer. Some teenagers even formed vigilante mobs, parking on deserted roads after nightfall, armed with shotguns, hoping to lure the phantom killer into a trap. With the curfew and police aggressively patrolling the streets at night, the killings stopped. The people of Texarkana began to feel safe again. The home was a safe place until the killer did something no one saw coming. The phantom changed his entire modus operandi to satisfy his bloodlust. He could strike anyone, anywhere. On the evening of May 3rd, 1946, 
36-year-old Virgil Stark sat down in his chair with an electric heating pad on his back. He was a farmer and part-time welder who suffered from chronic pain. Virgil and his beautiful wife Katie were childless. They both worked on the farm and lived in a spacious six-bedroom house on the Arkansas side of Texarkana. The couple were well-liked in the community and lived a simple life of relative comfort. As Katie got ready to turn in for the evening, she mentioned to her husband she had heard strange noises coming from outside. Virgil told her it was probably the wind and not to worry about it. Katie went upstairs, where she laid on the bed in her nightgown reading a magazine. While Virgil rested in his chair, listening to the radio and reading the newspaper, little did he know that a figure in a white hood had appeared and stood outside the window behind him. Suddenly, Katie Sparks heard the sound of broken glass. She thought Virgil had fallen and hurt himself. She got up off the bed and ran down the stairs, calling out to Virgil, but he did not answer. She ran over to his chair and screamed, screamed as if her soul had been torn from her body. Her husband was dead. He had been shot twice in the head through the window with a 22 rifle. Virgil's body had slumped to the side and a pool of dark blood had formed around his chair. Katie ran to the kitchen to call for help using a wall crank phone. As she frantically dialed the number, the killer fired two more shots from the same window. Two bullets hit Katie Starks in the face, one breaking her lower jaw and causing her teeth to literally explode onto the floor, and the other entering her cheek before exiting behind her left ear. The first bullet became lodged underneath her tongue. Katie dropped to the floor in a horrific state. Katie tried crawling to the bedroom to get a pistol, leaving behind a gruesome trail of blood and teeth. She stopped as she heard a noise drawing closer to her. She listened as the phantom scurried around the back of the house and made his way up the steps and onto the side screen porch through the back screen door. The thing was coming for her. And in that moment, Katie realized with cold fear that she had to get out of the house or the thing outside was going to kill her. Unarmed, half blind from the blood in her eyes, she staggered from the bedroom and into the kitchen where she saw the phantom coming through the kitchen window. He wore what looked like a burlap sack over his head with slits for eyes, like a scarecrow from hell. He existed as an outline, a silhouette, a body breathing through a mask. Pure, unadulterated evil in the shape of a man. The killer had a rifle slung over his shoulder and was in the process of wrapping a cloth around the barrel of a pistol. He saw Katie and charged after her. Fighting for her life, Katie turned and ran back into the bedroom, down a passageway, through another bedroom, and then into the living room and out the front door. Barefooted and still in her blood-soaked nightgown, Katie Sparks ran across the street to her sister's and brother-in-law's house. She desperately banged on the door, but no one was home. She ran 50 yards to the house of another neighbor, A.V. Prater. When Mr. Prater answered the door, Katie gasped, Virgil's dead, then collapsed. Prater walked outside and shot two rounds with his rifle into the air to scare away the phantom. Against all odds, Katie Sparks miraculously survived. She would go on to remarry and live a relatively normal life. 
By the time the police arrived that night, the phantom had disappeared. The killer had left behind muddy footprints and a bloody fingerprint. He had ransacked the home looking for his prey. Two days later, a homeless man's body was found on train tracks north of Texarkana. The local newspaper speculated that the man, Earl McSpadden, was the phantom and that he had committed suicide. That all changed when the coroner's report on May 7th revealed that McSpadden had been brutally stabbed to death before his body was placed on the tracks, leading many to believe that McSpadden was in actuality another victim of the phantom killer. The town of Texarkana lived in fear, waiting to be struck again. But another attack never came. The killer's true identity remains a mystery to this day, and Texarkana has never been the same since. Whoever, or whatever, committed the murders had come in the night like a phantom, then vanished like one into the annals of true crime history. So, any thoughts, comments, or questions, Michael? There are two images that define this case for me. One is the mask the killer wears, and the other is Katie Stark's teeth exploding onto the floor. Mm-hmm. Someone vomiting up their teeth. I think this is a non-controversial opinion. <laughs> it's a horrendous image. I mean, I can tell you... I've knocked out my two front teeth, and it's not pleasant. It's horrible. Uh, The image of someone's teeth exploding onto the floor, I I don't love that. (laughs) Who would? Anything with teeth breaking or falling out, (laughs) I'm not a fan. Yeah, yeah, because you can just viscerally feel that, can't you, with the teeth? It's a weird way. Like, I've never really heard of something like that in a case before. Like, you see stuff like that in horror movies, but you don't really see that in, like like reading about some serial killer, like somebody's teeth, they're shot in the face and their teeth. I think it's a detail that they don't really talk about. Yeah, I think it's something that happens in domestic violence cases, for instance, or beatings. Or just somebody being shot in the face. We don't talk about their teeth. That's what happens. It's the the gory details. Yeah, yeah. And I got to say, these are some of the toughest victims I've ever heard of, especially Katie. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes many of these deaths all the more tragic. They didn't go down without a fight. They fought really hard to stay alive. Yeah. The phrase Texas strong is more than an overpriced t-shirt at Walmart. (laughs) I kind of think it depends on where you grow up in Texas. So you think Texas people are weak? Are you calling people weak? I'm saying there is an element of fat Texans who probably shop at Walmart all the time and read QAnon conspiracies are not tough at all. That's every state. That's every part of America. Those are called snowflakes. (laughs) And they all worship Elon Musk. Right. I think, I honestly, if anyone, if you live out in the country and you do, you know, you're farming and that kind of thing, that is going to make you a tougher person. Well, you also had Jimmy Hollis, the first attack. He gets his head caved in mm-hmm. and he manages to pick himself up and call for help. Well, it's a working class town. So these I are mean, tough people. Yeah, tough. but he was yeah. a nerd. He, was, he looks like a dork. No offense, Jimmy, but he was tough. Yeah. Yeah. There is, you know, and there is an expectation, I think, in Texas, if you're raised there, to be tough. If I get my head caved in, I'm not getting up, probably. <laughs> yeah. I'm just dead. I'm just dead. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> but 
you have a woman who is shot not once but twice in the face and still manages to run out of the house and escape her attacker. Yeah. And not only does she go to one house and her sister's not there, she manages to find the strength to get to her neighbors. That's where it feels like a horror movie. Like they're banging on the door. Let me in. Please. Yeah. And not knowing if the fucker is still out there, the neighbor gets his rifle and shoots it off into the, uh, the air. And I think that that sticks with me. That image right there also sticks with me. It's very memorable. Mm -hmm. Katie was a true survivor. Yeah. I don't know for certain who committed the murders. I have a theory, which we will get to in part two. But what I can say for now is that whoever did this is a coward. Mm-hmm. I think that's beyond doubt. When you stop and you think about it, the killer killed a bunch of teenage kids and murdered a disabled man in cold blood by shooting him in the back. Yeah. I mean, anybody can do that. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, though. It's a disturbing case, and the murders themselves are very scary. Right. This case really hits on this primal fear of random violence. But the person behind all that murder and mayhem was ultimately just some loser wearing a tampon on their head. <laughs> I didn't know they, they came in that size tampons. It's a giant tampon, basically. <laughs> Having said that, a psychopath with a tampon on their head <laughs> is still a menace to society. Yeah. As we have seen lately, old people with guns are a menace to society. Yeah. The Phantom is wearing... It's kind of like a Halloween costume, like a really crappy one. <laughs> yeah. The aesthetic seems to be hobo scarecrow. Yeah. But this isn't Halloween, and this isn't a prank. People are being killed. And things are always scarier at night. Yeah, and I think that's evolutionary. Of course. Y- humans have developed a tendency to be scared of the dark. And if there are predators in the dark, you probably can't see them. And this is a killer who wears a mask. So he has no face. And a man without a face is the unknown, and we always fear the unknown. Right. The mask, the lack of motive, the randomness of the attacks. It's a bunch of little things that all add up to something very unsettling. Why do you think the killing suddenly stopped? I'm not sure they ever did. Serial killers don't age out. It's a lifelong affliction. They don't stop unless they are caught or killed or die of natural causes. Yeah. Some people say, no, that's not true. No, it is true. It is true. It's a compulsion that they are helpless to resist. They are driven by their madness. Mm -hmm. They are driven by their passions. And their passions are very dark. Right. I'm not saying this is a good thing that these compulsions are happening. I'm saying that's what they're driven by. Yeah. And this killer, you know, spawned the legend of the Hookman. The very famous urban legend that there's a couple on Lover's Lane. And suddenly they hear a noise outside which we kind of played with in the cold open. Right. And then there's this noise, and then uh, they're attacked by a... Usually it's like an escape mental patient with a hook. I always thought it was someone who was like a longshoreman because he has like a raincoat on. Well, there are variations of every urban legend. Ah, I see. You know? In some versions, the girl goes out and she finds the boyfriend. He's hung. Yeah, by a hook. Yeah. or Even Scream did something like that, didn't they? Yeah. The very first Scream movie. I will say more next time when we get to the suspects and the theories. Right, because Michael's theory is insane, and it's also on brand for him. Very Michael. Well, I wouldn't want to disappoint. I have a brand to maintain. (laughs) A brand of crazy. It's crazy, but it's not as crazy as some of the people we know on Twitter. So, (laughs) But I'm getting there. So that's the end of part one. 
Next time, we will go down the rabbit hole of crazy with all the suspects and theories. They deserve their own episode. We are also going to talk more about the history of Texarkana itself because it's there's a lot to this place. Some towns are born bad. All right, Stephanie, where can they find us? You can find us at the Spookies Podcast at gmail.com if you want to send us your questions or comments. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, and if you come at us on Twitter, we'll fight you. <laughs> Always. <laughs> we got into a kerfuffle this morning. I'm not going to get into it, but... It was funny. He went after Stephanie and I struck back. <laughs> well, so did I. <laughs> if you're going to troll me and attack my wife's appearance, <laughs> don't date your sister. That's all I'm going to say. Because <laughs> I will come at you over that. If you look just like the woman you're dating <laughs> or married to, I'm going to make note of that. I, I will too. <laughs> and I just want to say, I just want to say, and I'm talking like Trump, just want to say that I'm not verified. We will not be giving Elon a dime. Never. And anybody who does is a sucker. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're a sucker. Don't give that rich fuck any of your money. He's just got like billions of, do- or is it trillions of dollars in more government grants for his bullshit. And his rocket just blew up today. So, But I will say, you know, for his fans, if you guys want to board the next rocket, <laughs> I'm sure it's safe. You'll be fine. Get on it. Yeah, his his He's rockets go- and cars are very safe. They're not hazardous. They don't catch on it fire and explode. It will take you to Mars. <laughs> So get on it. You'll be safe. (laughs) All right. See you next time. Bye-bye.